This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. Having earned a PhD in molecular biology at Harvard, Conchin was pretty surprised when their research lab started studying turmeric, a spice that she had grown up with in India, and kind of thought, you know, the benefits maybe were true, maybe weren't. But in this lab, they were testing and finding that there were these benefits that her family and culture had traditionally believed. And this revelation kind of sparked her curiosity about what other things about spices are overlooked and misunderstood. And the pieces really fell into place when she became a mother and started putting spice in her baby son's food and seeing how other parents reacted to that. And so she decided to leave what she was doing in research and focus fully on spices and started with a cookbook called Spice Spice Baby for Babies and Small Kids and has devoted her life to understanding spices, how they help us, and how they can make our food taste a heck of a lot better. It's a really interesting idea, really interesting concept, and very parallel to the story of athletic brewing, doing something that you know you don't see anyone else doing well and going for it. And the world has a lot better non-alcoholic beer because of it. And with Conchin, a lot of people are eating a lot better meals because of it. So as we dive into Conchin's unconventional journey of starting Spice Spice Baby, I hope it inspires you to take that path less traveled and also add a, add a little dash of spice to your holiday menu. Let's go ahead and dive in. How you doing? I'm doing great, Mason. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I love the concept of your show. I obviously love your non-alcoholic beers, so I'm really excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. No, this this is awesome. I, and I'm really excited to dive into kind of your passions in talking about this story because uh, there's there's so much I want to know. There's so much I've learned, but there's so much I want to know. But I, I, what I want to start with is talking about where you grew up and how you got this whole foundation for a love of spices and, and, and how that, you know, maybe was something that was planted early on. You, you studied something else in school, and then now it's almost come front and center again. Can you tell us about what it was like spending the first 18 years of your life in India? Yeah, so I was born and raised in India for 18 years. Like you said, I grew up in a traditional Indian family, and anyone who is familiar with you know, India or Indian people or Indian food will know that pretty much every Indian household has a spice box in the pantry. It is kind of akin to, you know, what you would find in a typical American pantry, like your staples. Like we have the staple spice box. It's usually stainless steel. It has multiple compartments. And depending on which part of India you live in and, you know, your household and your background, there might be some variations in terms of the spices that you would find in the spice box, but you will almost always find turmeric, some sort of cumin, maybe chili powder, mustard seeds. So I grew up with the spice box in my household kitchen that my mom and my grandmother and everybody else who cooked for us would use in all our food. And to be completely honest with you, Mason, I did not give it a second thought. I just thought it was, it is what it is. It's a spice box. Who cares? My grandmother would whip up all these spiced concoctions anytime I would be sick because in India, Spices are not just part of our pantry for flavoring food. They also are a big part of our traditional medical system. So if someone is sick, you are definitely making a golden latte or a golden milk. And let me tell you, the Indian golden milk is nothing like what you would find at your trendy Brooklyn or LA cafe. It is very golden <laughs> with oodles of turmeric that most children are like not interested in. So I had this negative association with golden milk. I was like, oh, medicine, disgusting. Does this even work? What is this woo-woo traditional Ayurveda stuff? I don't know. I was interested in science. I wanted to be a biologist. I knew that pretty young, like in eighth grade. And I, you know, took one step off to the next, applied to universities in the United States. I knew I wanted to leave India to study 
uh, because the options for biology in India at the time, 1997, were kind of limited to medicine. And I didn't really want to do medicine. I wanted to do research. So I was like, I'm going to the United States, you know, the land of opportunity. I'm going to go study biology there. And that's the science I'm interested in. I'm not interested in this woo-woo spice science that, you know, my grandma is all about. And that was really the background. So spices were an integral part of my cuisine. I loved them, but I kind of didn't value them, if I can say so myself. And I definitely didn't value them from a medicinal perspective until fast forward my graduate school days. And we can talk about sort of how it all came full circle. Well, what I want to talk about it. I love that, the Indian Spice Book. I, I, I was looking at that up while you were talking, and yeah, it seems to be like a, a format. It's the circle containers within the larger one. Where, where would that be? Would that sit on the countertop in, in the kitchen, or was it put away somewhere? Yeah, it's usually, right, it's usually in a drawer or a cupboard, and I think the reason is because, you know, Indians recognize, and many other cultures that have used spices for thousands of years recognize that spices are they're plant-derived um, ingredients, and they have they're living and breathing. So in a way, they tend to interact with the elements like heat and light and oxygen. So we tend to keep them away from heat and light in a drawer or a cabinet. So yeah, they would almost always be found in like a pantry, you know, in a cupboard or a drawer. Well, well, coming over to the states to study and 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 to pursue. Uh, research like you were talking about. You you went to America with a capital A. You went to Texas. Yes, I did. <laughs> Different culture than a lot of places in the U.S. even, but that is like the heart of American culture in a lot of ways, like almost to the extreme. You know, what drew you to Texas and what was your experience from maybe a food point of view? What were you seeing? Like, was it surprising? So a very pragmatic reason that had to do with my parents not really wanting me to leave India at 18 and go off by myself to the U.S. led me to Texas because my aunt, my mom's sister, lived in Houston. And so when I applied to different colleges, you know, Northeast, West Coast, Michigan, my parents were like, we don't know, that's too far. Austin, Texas is two hours from Houston and your aunt lives in Houston. So you're going to Austin, basically. And I was like, OK, <laughs> I'm going somewhere. And if that's all you're going to agree to, fine. Turns out University of Texas, Austin is an incredible school. And I'm so glad I went there. It was great school. Yeah, it's Austin is magical. I mean, it's changed so much over the years. I recently went uh, and I was blown away by how much it's how much it's changed since the late 1990s when I was in college. But, you know, yeah, I, w I arrived in Texas and it was definitely a culture shock. I mean, it's uh, it's like you said, <laughs> USA with a capital A. Um, but at the same time, Austin is very diverse. So UT Austin, I think, is one of the biggest colleges in the United States. It might be like second largest after Ohio State or something. There's 50,000 kids, tons of Indians. So a lot of international students, a lot of Indians who are born and raised in the United States, because Texas has a large Indian population, if you didn't know. I mean, I didn't know that. But like I thought, I think Houston alone has 50,000 Indians, maybe more now. So I was definitely surrounded by diversity and people from all over the world and, you know, people from my own country or at least rooted in my own country. And honestly, I loved the food in Texas. Like the Tex-Mex is strangely very familiar and similar to Indian food. You have the beans with the spices, the rice, the different. There's a lot of spice in Tex-Mex food. So yeah, I a was, lot of flavor, you know, a lot of lot flavor. A lot of flavor, unapologetically leaning into like the garlic, the onions, you know, all the like the cumin, the chili. So I loved it. Um, I love a good taco. And yeah, I fully embraced my you know, my Austin experience, I have no regrets. And I'm really glad I went there because it gave me that exposure of diversity and a really large university where you have to be really resourceful. I think, you know, when you go to a smaller school, you can sometimes be spoon fed, which is great and has its perks. But at a big university like UT Austin, you have to be motivated yourself and you have to capitalize on the resources available to you. And I definitely felt like I learned to do that, which has served me well now as an entrepreneur. Wow, that that's really interesting. India to Texas in that, yeah, that Tex-Mex in that area. There's a lot of legacy with food. Yes. And in, in how it's done, a little different even than the rest of the country. And then you went to the Northeast. That had to be another culture change in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, I enjoyed my time in Austin, but there was this part of me, Mason, that was like, I got to go somewhere else. Like, I, I need to go to New York in my head. I have no idea why. I mean, I didn't know anyone in New York. I just knew New York from like the movies, you know, and I was like, I feel like I need to go to the biggest city in America. <laughs> and um, I made my way there. I, I applied to a lab at NYU Medical School. I got accepted as a research technician and I went there to spend a gap year, not knowing what I was going to do after I graduated. Still very interested in biology, in research, but not quite clear if I wanted to do a master's degree or a PhD or go work somewhere. So I was like, I'll just go be a research tech for a year and figure it out. So I ended up in New York and basically decided that I loved lab, lab work and research enough to do a PhD. So I applied to PhD programs and then ended up going to Harvard Medical School, which was obviously, you know, an incredible and incredibly hard experience. Probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, six years to get my PhD there. And that is where the spices full circle moment happened. I, I want to hear that because I feel like you got this idea, but then you were also uh, in this dilemma of, I just got my PhD. How do I already veer off that path in a way? How am I going to you know, communicate that with the people around me. But tell, tell us the story about kind of the realization. Yeah. So I went to Harvard Medical School to study molecular biology. I ended up in a cancer biology lab looking at breast cancer and just how cancer arises at a molecular level. What are some of the things that go awry in our cells that lead to cancer? And I was fascinated by the research I was doing. I loved every second of it. Of course, high pressure environment, very difficult, challenging, but you know, like, like most things in life that are difficult, there's usually um, a huge sense of reward once you actually accomplish the thing. So that was true for me in the PhD. In the course of my PhD, my lab started to study compounds derived from natural sources that could have anti-cancer potential. So we were doing something called a screen in biology where you're looking at a bunch of different compounds to see which of these actually can have an effect on breast cancer cells and improve the efficacy of traditional cancer treatment. And one of the compounds in the screen was the compound in turmeric, which is called curcumin. And you can imagine, you know, I saw the screen, I saw the list of compounds and I was like, wait a second, we're, there's, we're studying turmeric for breast cancer this is wild. <laughs> this is a full circle moment for me because I literally grew up with the spice. I kind of rolled my eyes at it. I thought it was woo-woo nonsense. And I was, I was interested in real science. And here I am doing real science and we're looking at turmeric. So something's hmm. going on that I must have missed that clearly 5,000 years ago, our ancestors were onto, which is a whole fascinating subject, you know, in its own right. But yeah, I think it was a real full circle moment for me that a lot of this ancient wisdom is now being corroborated by modern science and plants have power and plant derived compounds have power and food can be medicine and spices can be medicine and all of that. And I just kind of let the seed be planted, but I tucked it away because like you said, I was a traditional good student that did all the right things. I did my PhD and now I was going to do the logical next thing, which was go and do biotechnology drug development stuff. So when you do a PhD in biomedicine, you really have kind of two traditional options. You can become an academic professor and have your own lab and do your own research, write papers. I wasn't really interested in that. I wanted to be more out in the world doing more kind of applied science, if you will. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go try to discover new drugs because that's what you do with a PhD in biology. And so, you know, my friend and I, there was always an entrepreneurial streak in me. I didn't feel like I could go to like a big pharmaceutical company and be happy there. I wanted to do something on my own. So we actually started an early stage biotechnology company that was going to try to focus on novel antibiotic drug development. It sounded audacious and crazy, but we were like, whatever, we'll try. If we fail, we'll learn something in the process and we'll leverage that in our next career move. But at least this makes sense on paper. My parents will be proud. Everybody will be like, she did a PhD at Harvard and now she's doing biotech. Great. Makes sense. Check all the boxes. 
you know, but my heart and soul wasn't a hundred percent in drug development. It was really in preventative health and food because I'm a foodie at heart. And I, and I love the idea of preventing disease before it can happen. And so I was doing the biotech stuff. Life happened. My husband got asked to move to Hong Kong for his job. I had just had a baby. So I was a new mother now. And we moved to Hong Kong. I have a six-month-old baby boy. And, you know, for any parents listening, that's the exciting age when you start giving your kid solid foods. And of course, I was adding spices into his solid food because I'm Indian and because I knew spices have medicinal and health-boosting properties. And so I was just adding like turmeric to his lentils with avocado or cinnamon to his sweet potato. And my mom friends in New York City and even in Hong Kong were like, oh, how does that work? Like, are you allowed to do that? Are you sure that's like, have you checked with your pediatrician? And I did. And my pediatrician said, yeah, go for it. Like, there's no scientific basis to give kids bland food. Hmm. You know, we've just come up with that idea because we think kids' palates are underdeveloped, but cultures around the world are giving safer you know yeah kids around kids and cultures around the world are getting exposed to stuff way earlier than we are in the united states and it's actually good for them so i decided you know what i don't know what i'm doing career wise i'm taking a break from biotech i'm a mom of a six-month-old i'm gonna start a blog because it was 2014 and if you had an interest in 2014 and you were like i don't really know what to do you started a blog it's kind (laughs) of like people starting podcasts now (laughs) You had gone around the world to to pursue this. How did you deal with that part? Because that 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 is definitely similar to our story here at Athletic Bruin. Is Bill, our founder, was working on Wall Street in New York, really professional job, making a lot of money, but not fulfilled. And am I really going to leave all that to start a brewery, and not just a brewery, but one that with beer that doesn't have alcohol? Like who? That's never been done. Like what do you mean? It doesn't yeah. even make any sense on paper anywhere, but it just, you couldn't throw it away. So it sounds like you were kind of in that same position. What what were the people around you thinking when you started maybe talking about this or pursuing this? So I'm pretty sure my family thought initially that I was nuts. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely had some not so great comments from some family members that I won't mention in case they're oh, listening. Oh, no. Um, who were like, who does a PhD and then becomes a cook? Like, this is weird. And what are you doing? And like, just kind of questioning my whole trajectory. I felt like some key people in my life were very supportive. And I feel like that really helped me stay the course. So my, my, my husband, my partner was very supportive. So I'm very grateful to him. I had some close friends who said, what you're doing is truly unique and innovative and cool and just keep doing it. And honestly, I have vivid memories of moments when like, for example, you know, I like to run and I do a lot of introspection when I run. And I remember a very specific run I was doing in Hong Kong. I was like running my 5k and I had this moment of clarity where I was like, this is what you, what your soul wants you to do. Like, this is what you're meant to do. So just follow that voice and forget about everybody else. It doesn't mean that I didn't have doubts. It doesn't mean that I didn't feel like I was letting people down and that maybe I was making a huge mistake and definitely moments of questioning myself, but I really tried to stay connected to that, those moments of clarity that would say, your gut is telling you you're on the right track. I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know how a blog is going to end up being a career. I don't know what you're going to do exactly, but you're very passionate about preventative health. You're very passionate about the power of food and spices to help people get there. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I kind of followed that voice. Um, And again, it wasn't easy, but I'm glad I did because now I get to do what I do and call it a career and it's magical. When when did the name come about? And of course, it's a reference to one of my favorite songs, Vanilla yeah. Ice, Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> but you know what's funny? The next phrase of that saying, Ice Ice Baby, what's what ha- what's next? Vanilla Ice, which is a spice. That's so like, Correct. I don't know, coincidental. It's a beautiful spice, yeah. So, so yeah, tell us about creating the name because I think that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, the name is hilarious because... 
I recall vividly that I had a dream that I was going to start this blog and this is what I was going to call it. My husband disagrees with me and says that he came up with the name. Oh, Okay. And I have, I'm like, okay, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. If you think you came up with my blog name, great, thank you. I think I did, but hey, it's a great name. So <laughs> however we got to it as a team, I'm happy. At the time, my focus was baby food. So I yeah. was yep. really trying to uh, teach people how to add spices to their kids' food and starting with babies. So I wanted the name baby in there and I wanted the name spice. And I was like... <laughs> Something rings a bell here. <laughs> I love it. So, all right, you, you, you start diverging from the path of, of pursuing this, this traditional career or the career that you thought you would, let's put it that way. And what, what were some of those early wins? What were some of that, was that early traction? You obviously enjoyed writing. That's a big part of it, enjoying the work itself. What was something else or things that started to happen where kind of maybe gave you confidence that I'm on the right path here? Yeah, so definitely that intrinsic reward was there from day one. I was like, I love this. So that's great. But as you know, we live in a society and we are conditioned to rely on external validation and external wins. So I would say those started to come in the form of just people signing up for my blog, people wanting to learn more, people signing up for my newsletter, um, and people giving me feedback that this was really innovative and cool and no one had talked about spices in baby food before and even spices really in everyday food as medicine or, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word medicine because I think medicine, real medicine has a place and I never want to suggest that like you should abstain from real medicine when you need it and use food as medicine. I think it can all be very healing and health promoting but yeah, I, I started to get feedback from my audience that said they they just thought this was great and different. And then I, you know, I got invited to speak at like certain seminars or panels. I got asked to teach in forums. And I really felt like this was just a wonderful way to combine all my interests and my expertise. I could speak to the science of spices because of my PhD in a way that many people cannot, because I have the training to be able to read scientific papers and extract from them the key findings and translate that into language that a lay audience member can understand. But I also had this huge passion for food and then my background with spices. So I feel like it was just like meant for me, like a, like a job description created for me. And then I would say the big breakthrough really Mason came when I decided to self-publish my cookbook. So a friend of mine was like, you have all these recipes why don't you write a cookbook? And I was like, I don't know how to do that. Like, who's going to publish it? Who do I, I, like, how do I even start? And she was like, you know, there's this huge trend right now with crowdfunding. So why don't you take your audience and tell them you want to do a book and ask them to pre-order copies and that would fund the book. And then you don't even need a publisher. You can just self-publish it. So thank you to my friend, Michelle, who lives in Lebanon, if she's listening. We had coffee in Hong Kong, and she's the one who inspired me to do this whole crowdfunding thing. And it worked, and I wrote the cookbook. And I feel like that really legitimized my domain expertise and took it from a passion project to like a real business and a product. You know, it, it all just kind of snowballed from there in a way that I could never have predicted and I just, you know, keep coming back to that line from Steve Jobs, like the dots connect in hindsight. And all you can do is follow your passion, follow like your authentic inner voice and truth and stay nimble, stay innovative, stay creative, respond to the environment. You know, social media was changing. I had to respond. We went from photos to video. I had to respond. So it's not like you just follow the voice and do what you do. You also are interacting with the current landscape and like modifying and iterating and innovating. But I feel like I've always stayed true to what I feel is my true mission and doors have opened and I'm just very grateful for all of it. Before starting this journey, what was maybe even for you, what were some spices that you, you maybe didn't know about or have rediscovered or discovered for yourself that, that you weren't using before uh, just because maybe you didn't have as much uh, room to experiment or room to discover them? Yeah, great question. So, you know, the spices we use in India are great and diverse, but there are some that don't exist in the Indian pantry. And the one that I have become obsessed with through my own 
Spice Spice Baby journey is a spice called sumac. So if anyone has ever been to a Middle Eastern restaurant and ordered hummus or baba ganoush or even like a salad, and you've seen that dusting on top of like a burgundy purplish powder, that is the sumac berry that has been dried and crushed into a powder and it's sprinkled liberally on a lot of Middle Eastern dishes. I became obsessed with sumac because I love the flavor. It's like lemon and tang without the liquid. And it has this fruity kind of complexity. And then the more I started to research its benefits, I was even more blown away. It's very antioxidant rich. Anytime you see this color purple in nature, you're encountering plant pigments called anthocyanins, which are really powerful antioxidants, great for brain health, heart health, potentially cancer prevention. So I was like, oh my gosh, here's a spice that tastes amazing that you can put on everything, like dust it on like you would squeeze lemon or lime. And it has all these medicinal properties and I never knew it growing up. So now I put sumac literally on everything. Oh, wow. What, what do you think is maybe one of the most underappreciated spices or underutilized? Like people don't realize how universal this is and how much better it could make their food or, or drinks. Yeah, I would say cardamom. I feel like it's more polarizing than I realized because I did a poll on my social media and it said, what's your least favorite spice? And many people said cardamom, which shocked me because it's one of my favorites. Really? And I, what's that? What's that taste? So um, if you've ever had like, like a minty chewing gum, many chewing gum companies actually use cardamom because it's a natural breath freshener. So cardamom to me tastes like floral, minty, kind of like perf perfumey luxury. And it's a green pod. When you smash the pod open, you get these black oily seeds inside. They're often ground into what we get as cardamom powder at the store. Um, you can put it into any dessert or baked good and immediately make it taste like a luxurious dessert without the need for added sugar or any of the other stuff. Um, it's amazing in chai, which is our spiced tea in India. You can add it to coffee. There's some anecdotal evidence that it can reduce the acidity of the coffee or at least reduce the acidic impact of the coffee in your gut lining if you're sensitive. I There's actual research to show that just the scent of it can reduce nausea if you're prone to nausea. So I think it's an incredible underutilized spice. And I Literal, I'm literally drinking a matcha latte right now that has cardamom in it. So I put it in everything. How many spices are there in the sense of how many do we know we use and are usable? Are we at the end of, of discovery with spices? Or are we coming up with or finding new ways to process different parts of plants to create something new or mixing them? Like, are we at the end of that journey? We're just underutilized or are there new ones always being discovered? You know what I'm saying? It's almost like yeah. bird species. Yeah, there's a few ones we kind of realize are new species, but for the most part, we know them all. Yeah, I would say for the most part, we know them all. Spices were discovered like over 5,000 years ago. They were revered mm -hmm. by our ancestors. People fought wars literally for their monopoly. Yeah, a lot of world history has been shaped <laughs> by, uh, yeah. by, these, the quest by for what spices. you do. Yeah. Yes. Um, but people, they're hugely underutilized, especially in the West, um, because people are afraid of them. And I don't blame them. If you didn't grow up with something, it can feel intimidating. So if all you know how to use is salt and pepper, then you're going to take all the rest of the spices and shove them in the back of your pantry and only pull them out when you find this special recipe. But my goal is to change that. So I would say we know what they are, but they're underutilized because people are intimidated by them. I think the innovation is in how to make them more accessible to the everyday global home cook. Because not everybody wants to eat, you know, uh, like a curry or a traditional like dish from whatever parts of the world where spices are routine. Like even I don't necessarily want to eat Indian food every day anymore because now I live in Brooklyn and my kids are American and mm -hmm. they want a grilled cheese sandwich, you know, and I'm like, okay. So sometimes I will spice up their grilled cheese. Yeah. So what, what would you do there? What would you do there? What, what can go on a grilled cheese to make it a little more interesting? Yeah, I have a recipe on my Instagram. Uh, we actually had it featured in the New York Times, which was very exciting. It's called a masala grilled cheese. We call it a masala cheese toast. Oh, I'm, and I'm all seeing it is, the video right now. Ooh, yeah, awesome. all it is is shredded cheese, your favorite shredded cheese, your favorite bread, butter. And then I throw in some finely chopped shallots 
um, some cilantro, which I know is polarizing. It's okay. You can skip it if you don't like the taste. And a little bit of like turmeric or a spice blend with turmeric, cumin, and coriander. And then you just mix it all and make your grilled cheese. And now it has this like extra layer of spice and my kids love it, which makes me really happy. But, you know, even if you don't want to do that, like even if all you do is take your daily favorites, like if you start your day with oatmeal and now you add a generous dusting of cinnamon and a little bit of cardamom in your oatmeal, you have spiced up your oatmeal and you have added potentially blood sugar stabilizing benefits and some gut health boosting benefits and some anti-inflammatory properties. Now you take your lentil soup for lunch or your bolognese and you've added you know, say you add a little cumin or paprika, again, you've taken your everyday favorite and you've added more antioxidants to that and more flavor. And then let's say you're having salmon for dinner, you dust it with sumac and a little bit of dill or some sliced lemon. So it's like, can we take the things we already love and add spices to them because they are packed with antioxidants. They are great to make food and cooking more fun and adventure filled. And they're super great for your health. And, and it, yeah, it's not often, I mean, at, at least maybe here in America, we're not used to things that make food taste better and can actually help your health. You know, a lot of times it is more salt or more sugar or more butter that can add flavor, but spices do that just as efficiently, if not better. And there's also these other benefits to it. So, yeah, and, yeah, and I will just add that I think the innovation, like you were asking about where, you know, where we are, I think there's more innovation in spice blends because to be honest, I think people like to have, a, you know, a couple of blends they can throw into different dishes. Um, that's a really nice kind of area of innovation. There's, you know, I actually did a product collaboration in that space, which has been fun. And here, I'll say this, like the naysayers, right? So there are definitely people who say, okay, I'm putting a sprinkling of a spice in my dish. How can it possibly have a health benefit? It's so little. Like that's not, it's just impossible. And for a long time, we had to make a strong case on the science side that there was a benefit. But guess what? We actually have studies now where people are given food with and without spices, culinary amounts, not a supplement, not a huge amount, just like a tablespoon of a spice blend in your burger. And then you look at markers of inflammation right after the meal and they're lower with the spices versus without the spices. So, I mean, it's a win-win, right? More flavor, more health, easy to use in culinary amounts. Why not? It's really cool to see ancient wisdom proven true, like proven true by the best scientific processes and the, the method that we, we have today. Uh, it's so neat. I, I feel like we come across that sometimes. I see it out in the world. Like I'll hear some saying my whole life from like my grandpa or something. And then to see something come out that says, actually, you know, that's not just, you know, old farmer wisdom. That's actually true. And not always. It's not always the case. There are such things as, you know, old wives tales or things yeah. like that. But uh, it's so neat to see like, oh, my gosh, there's actually value in some of those at, and sometimes very ancient sayings or traditions and it seems like you you've i don't know we're, we're really fascinated by that when you we started seeing that with turmeric specifically i'm fascinated by it i'm fascinated by how our ancestors intuitively knew some of these things i also consider my job as someone with a science background to cut through the noise so when i hear claims that i have not seen any science behind i will mention that Maybe there's truth to it, and maybe we haven't caught up yet with the ancient wisdom. But a lot of times, you know, I'll see people making, like, crazy claims about how things can cure things. And, like, you know, we have to stay balanced, and I like to be evidence-based. So, yeah, I feel like that's also something I take quite seriously is to, like, cut through some of the hyperbole and the noise. What's an easy trick, or what are some things you realize that – to help kids eat better, is there a spice that, that kids have really, with, with your, you know, a Spice Spice Baby book, uh, what's a quick trick for parents? I've got two little kids that, you know, it's it's it can be challenging to get them to eat something, but I yes. feel like I'm underutilizing spice in, in the recipes. Yeah. So I will say this. I have two kids too. My older son is 11. He is a very adventurous eater, and I would love to take credit for it. But then I have a six-year-old who I also raised in the same way. And let's just say she is a more particular eater. 
God. And that just goes to show that, you know, just any parents listening, like you can do all the things and follow all the textbook rules and your kids will do their own thing. And that's okay. Like it's a journey. I keep telling myself, I keep telling other parents, getting to a place where you are an adventurous, healthy eater that is open to a wide variety of foods is a journey. Some kids get there quicker. Some kids get there slower. Don't berate yourself for it. (laughs) That said, I do think certain things can help. So I really think getting kids, once they're at a certain age, involved in simple preparation steps in the kitchen can make a huge difference. So if I get, for example, my daughter to help me, um, you know, take the cinnamon bark that I'm going to use in like her hot chocolate, because I want to show her that you can add cinnamon to hot chocolate and then like season, you know, sweeten it with some date syrup instead of sugar to keep it a little bit healthier, but still packed with flavor. Or if we make a banana bread together and I have her add the cardamom, or if we're making like a lentil or beef bolognese and we add some paprika, I'll sometimes play guessing games. Like I'll ask them, what's this, what's the secret ingredient in this bolognese? And it just gets them interested. You can have them add the spice. Spices are so beautiful in terms of like the way they um, have the sensory power. They have aroma. They are brightly colored often. You know, getting your kids to like smash the cinnamon sticks before you add them to something is just a fun like activity for them. Even if they just watch you and you just tell them, I'm adding this thing, you're going to have to guess what it is. It's, It's kind of a fun way, I think, to get them to have like some skin in the game. That, that's interesting. Yeah, they, they intuitively, at least mine, want to help in the kitchen and getting them involved with maybe some of those things, you know, pouring things in bowls. T- tell me a little bit about how, what food does for us, it, you know, what, what food does for you in connecting us with those we love and those around us. Something so powerful about food. One, we need it, but but two, uh, it it almost can it can connect generations. It can connect us geographically, culturally, and can almost transport us. Uh, I'm sure that's a really powerful motivation for you too. Yeah, I mean, three hundred percent. I think breaking bread with someone is the deepest, one of the deepest forms of connection. Um, it's a way to transcend differences. It's a way to come together. It's a way to share an experience, a, you know, a story. I mean, so I used to be in this very reductionist kind of nutritionist camp. Like everything is about all the micronutrients and the macronutrients and how's that impacting our physiology. And I think that's true. Food has an impact on our physiology at a macro and micronutrient level. But I am more convinced than ever before that there's something energetic about how food impacts our well-being beyond just the components in the food. It's like like all the things you said, like how we connect over food, how we connect with food, how we connect with how food is made and produced and where it comes from and how we connect with the cultural identities around it, the stories around it, the ancestral practices around it. I mean, it's like really, really deep and profound. And I think when we allow ourselves to see food beyond just sustenance and beyond just like nutrition in this way, I think it really can impact our well-being, um, you know, in, in monumental ways. So I shared just yesterday on my Instagram, we recently lost my father-in-law to his battle with Parkinson's disease. And he was, you know, an incredible chef, huge influence in my life um, and my husband's life. And we're celebrating his life and his legacy through his recipes. And I'm able to make some of his signature dishes for my kids, for my husband. And we always talk about him when we eat them. And we remember how we made it together or things that he would do. So, I mean, it's like, limitless really how food can help us connect to people that are no longer with us, people that are with us and, you know, to people that we want to heal differences with. You know, I was just thinking about this. We just, you know, experienced Thanksgiving, which by the way, is the best holiday. No questions asked. (laughs) It's the best. It's all the fun of friends, family, food, and none of the pressure of buying gifts. It's just like, have a good meal together, enjoy it. Everyone gets a little dressed up. It's, it's just so awesome. Yeah, and, I couldn't agree more. My you know, favorite it's just the best. Too. Why can't Christmas people learn like that? But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Christmas is great <laughs> yep. too. Uh, I was thinking, because we were making a lot of the recipes that I'm like, mom, I want to do, do this this year. 
I know you always do it, but let let me take a swing at it. Uh, and I just was thinking, like, wow, once she's gone, this is what I'm going to do in honor of her is make all this food that she would make so that my kids know it. And it's just it's funny. you. I mean, it's just crazy you mentioned that about your father-in-law. Like, that is how I think we'll celebrate. And it's so interesting to hear that that's how you connect because it's like he would have made this so powerful. Yes, 100%. All right, with Athletic Brewing, make a non-alcoholic beer. We, we've used some spices in the past, some things in the past. Is there a spice you think would be maybe make a good fit for, for, for non-alcoholic beer or beer in general that, that isn't often thought about? You know, we, we like to get experimental at Athletic, of course. You know, we make non-alcoholic beer, so we'll, you know, mm-hmm. nothing's, nothing's off the table as far as ideas at this point. You know what I mean? So... Yeah. Is there something you think would work in, in in beer? I have had a beer, uh like a not a non-alcoholic beer that had been brewed with turmeric. Mm. I was very skeptical, but it was it was very good cuz turmeric has this kind of earthy undertone. I was surprised. I would never have thought of that. I would say if you were doing something more like fall seasonal, I'm almost thinking um cloves could be interesting i don't know if if that's been done Mm. you know there's a certain smokiness to them um that kind of depth of flavor and then i would also say which uh, maybe if you're doing a more like a lighter style i would experiment with coriander seeds so not cilantro because you know that's an herb but the coriander seed has like these lemon peppery notes and i think super underappreciated and i feel like Again, I'm I'm just thinking of a more like summer ale and how that might be an interesting experimental spice combo. Wow. You know, that's funny. We we do make a beer, our Downwinder Goza, which is more of a sour beer, is made with, with coriander and lime leaf. Okay. Um, so I'm not completely off and, the And rails. here's another thing, actually, <laughs> is, is our... Our uh, personal record IPA, which is made in in partnership with the Ironman Triathlon uh, Company, uh-huh. that is actually made with tropical hops, mango, and a splash of turmeric. There you go. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, I just tried your yeah, I tried your hazy IPA yesterday with an Indian dish, and it was brilliant. So good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's probably my favorite free wave. So good. So that I I've got a couple rapid fire questions for you. Okay. All right, let's see. What are you most curious about right now outside of let's say your work in food and spices? Mm, the potential of AI uh, in our world, I think um, artificial intelligence is uh, scary, but also very intriguing to me. And I'm very curious about how it's going to shape our, the way we work, the way we do things without totally, you know, taking over. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious about how that's going to go. Oh, gosh. Any predictions? <laughs> I'd like to think we can control it versus the other way around. Yeah. I mean, I think it's happening. It's AI is happening whether we want it to or not. So the question is, how do we get on board in a responsible way and help it, like use it to help us versus let it control us? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like the internet, I mean, we're, we're putting it to good use right now. You, of course, are in your career, and we all are. So, yep. That's yeah, great answer. Um, proudest achievement outside of of building Spice Spice Baby and and your entire brand. Okay, so I'm not just saying this because it's athletic brewing, but I have completely transformed my relationship with alcohol. And I know that sounds, you know, like it sounds like a silly thing to mention, but I will say like, and I know there, that it's loaded because there are people who really struggle with addiction and I wasn't one of them, but I, I went to college here and like many students here, I drank mindlessly and overdid it at times. And I think, you know, the con- like I became conditioned to drink less mindfully um, through my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And I had this real aha moment that it wasn't really serving my health or my health goals. And yeah, I've completely transformed the way I interact and engage and navigate alcohol and i feel like that is i'm proud of that you know people think athletic oh you know you're you're for people who only you know don't drink at all but no the the opposite is true most people 80 percent of the people that drink athletic drink alcohol so 
everyone's relationship is different. Of course, yeah. if you're sober, yes, you, you'll enjoy athletic if you like beer. And uh, But for those that are just, you know, adjusting that relationship, like myself included, you know, becoming a parent has really changed habits around that and the desire for it. So athletic is a great option for helping with that, whatever that is. Totally. That's awesome to hear. So, so you know, you've achieved that or you're on that in that process. What is what is one of the biggest goals you have yet to achieve that you want to? Mm. Very small questions here. Yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I would say biggest goal that I'm working on is having a greater comfort with failure. So I tend to be very hard on myself. I tend to be a perfectionist. I tend to want to have all my ducks in a row before I try anything new. And I have all these ideas and I feel like I need to start just going for it without worrying so much about having all the ducks in a row and kind of being playful about that whole idea of like, you know, you fail, you get back up, you iterate, you try it again. Uh, work in progress for me. But yeah, I feel like life will be more fun and my entrepreneurial journey will be more exciting once I'm able to do that better. Went down a really unique path that you didn't know would be <laughs> successful. I like, feel like you're a prime example of what it looks like to be okay with failure. But isn't it funny? Isn't it funny how we feel inside versus, you know. What the world sees, what, yes. What the world sees, yeah. So you're you're if you're dealing with that, we're all dealing with it then. So I love that answer. Um so in this process, in that pursuit, what what's something daily you try to stick to? Might not be perfect at it, but what's what's a daily habit you try to practice? I practice daily movement. Um, it's a non-negotiable for me. I think we are bo born to move as humans, and I don't call it exercise. I don't call it a workout. I just call it movement as celebration, something that I can do that makes me feel alive, that's challenging, that I can accomplish. It could be, you know, joining my kids while my daughter's doing like some gymnastics, or it could just be like a really brisk walk outside, dancing with my kids, yoga, resistance training, whatever. I feel like movement is medicine. Mm. So I make it a daily non-negotiable. What's a hobby you have that folks might not know about? Mm. Gosh, you know what? I, is running a hobby? I feel like I don't know that people know that yeah. I'm like... Yeah, completely definitely. obsessed with, yeah, uh, with running, improving as a runner, long runs outside, endurance running, you know, yeah, I love uh, running is my hobby. That will resonate well with, uh, with our listeners, trust me, <laughs> a lot of runners <laughs> in this community. Um, all right, we talked about, you know, the, the, the athletic brews you tried. Is there, is there any of them that, that stuck out to you? Oh, Yeah. I, so the first time I tried athletic brewing, I was blown away. I'm not just saying that because, you know, you're interviewing me, but like, I think I tried Upside Dawn and I was like, I know where I tried it. I drove to a restaurant. I drove my family to a restaurant upstate and I didn't want to drink because I was driving. I didn't even want one drink and they had a non-alcoholic beer on the menu. And I was like, I'll try that because I love beer. I love the bitterness. I love the hoppiness. And I was like, I'll, you know. And then I was like, wait a second, is this really like non-alcoholic? Like I was so surprised because I've had non-alcoholic beer when I was pregnant and I didn't like it. Um, and I was like, this is delicious. Like it's so well balanced, but it still has like the bitterness that I love. And yeah, I was really impressed. Um, and that really, then I started to buy it because I was like, okay, this is just going to be great for that Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. You know, I call it school night because my kids are in school and I have to get up to take <laughs> them to school. I'm like school night. This is my school night ritual. And then I still sleep great. You know, I have none of that sort of brain fog in the morning that now that I'm in my 40s, I sometimes have, even if I've had two drinks. So I'm like, this is amazing. And then I started to discover the newer flavors. So I would say the Golden, Upside Dawn, and then the Hazy IPA are the two faves right now. Well, that's uh, two of our flagship beers that folks can always find, Upside Dawn and Free Wave. And a great example of exactly why we do what we do. Your your story, your pursuit, the, the driving aspect, the... Oh, I got a school night aspect. Like you hit on so many of the key, the key reasons why we do what we do. So, I, and I didn't, I didn't prep you for that answer. You, you said it all on your own. <laughs> I did. I did share um, a, a drink on my social media page 
with the upside dawn, which is like a michelada, but I, I did um, a shelada, just like lime juice, sparkling water, and like the salt and chili rim and the beer and the non-alcoholic beer. So good. Back over. Last question. Starting this brewery, obviously a huge risk. Had no idea if it'd work, but we committed to the mindset of, of doing it without compromise, brewing without compromise, living without compromise. You're obviously on a journey that requires a lot of uh, commitment and in, in sticking to excellence and doing things very well. Uh, what does it mean to you to live without compromise? Great question. What it means to me to live without compromise is to never deviate from my authentic truth and my authentic voice. So to always stay true to what feels right within. I know that sounds a little cliche and potentially cheesy, but I think in this day and age, it's so easy to get pulled in so many directions. As an entrepreneur, as a content creator, there's so many trends and things that stick and the audience wants. And Rick Rubin, who wrote an incredible book, I don't know if music you producer. know it. Yes, he wrote a book called The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And he says, you are in service to the creative process. Like you're in service to the work, not your audience. The audience will come if it resonates with them. But if you're constantly trying to get followers or get likes or get traction, you're not staying true to that authentic voice and that authentic kind of creative impulse. So that's what it means to me to live without compromise is to always stay true to that authentic voice within. Well, there you have it, folks. There's Conscience' story about being a Harvard grad and PhD researcher to the chief spice mama over at Spice Spice Baby. Check out her Instagram to learn about all these awesome recipes. I've already tried a few of them. And if you want to find any of our non-alcoholic beer, go to athleticbrewing.com. You can find us on store shelves using our store finder or just order right from their website. 